0: to see everyone present this evening. We're glad to have you fellowship with us around the open page of the Word of God. It's a joy to me to open up the Word of God again as we do now turning to the book of Zechariah, the chapter that has been read, Zechariah chapter 6. May I say to Mr. Toms tonight and through him to the brethren in SJAT a very sincere thank you for this token of their kindness. Uh, This has been sprung as a surprise in me so that I didn't have any anticipation of this gesture but I've always enjoyed the fellowship we've had around the word of God and uh, the kindness of our brethren is such as to overwhelm our hearts. I heard a man say the other day concerning some issue or other, he said, a little bird told me, and he went on to say what it was he had to divulge. But tonight I have had no little bird, and this has come as a complete surprise. But uh, thank you, dear brother, and all the friends in SCAT. What we'll do is we'll read a few words from the start of the chapter again, just to familiarize ourselves with some of the things the Lord would have us recognize in the Scriptures. And come to that, because... This chapter 6 is uh, a key point in the prophecy. It might be good procedure on my part uh, to offer a simple outline of the prophecy. Many uh, have studied for years the book of Zechariah, but there are some among the Lord's people who would say, Well, I have read from its chapters, but I'm not conversant as I should with all the subjects it contains. Therefore, a simple outline won't be out of place. I divide the book of Zechariah into three parts. Number one, chapter one through to six, which I have entitled The Eight Visions. The Eight Visions of Zechariah. That's the first part of the prophecy. If you're going to start into the reading of Zechariah, you might appreciate getting to know the direction in which you're going. Maybe an outline like this can help get you started. It would be an encouragement to me anyway, if it did help you to make a start in the study of this prophecy. So, the first division, as I offer it tonight to you, chapters 1 through to 6 where we have the eight visions of Zechariah. Then the second part of this prophecy, two chapters this time, chapters 7 and 8, which I have entitled, The Questions and the Answers for the Prophet himself. That's a simple enough uh, title. No one needs a dictionary or a special help. To, to get to grips with that. Seven and eight. These two chapters. Are significantly placed in the book. With these questions directed at the prophet. And the answers God gave to him. Then the last part. Which takes up uh, six chapters. The last part of Zechariah runs from chapter nine. Onwards to the end. Which brings us to chapter 14 but those six chapters I divide into two simple parts and I may indicate to you that the Holy Spirit of God has brought about that division I'll explain what I mean in a moment but chapter 9 verse 1 begins the, uh, the final segment of the prophecy and you'll see that It has uh, a very distinctive beginning, namely the burden. Many of God's prophets in the old time felt that they had a burden to carry concerning Israel. And there was also the burden in their preaching as they sought to deliver the message of the Lord to the nation of Israel. So chapter 9 very distinctively begins with the words, The burden of the word of the Lord. And that will run through three chapters. Chapter 9, 10 and 11. We begin the last section. And that's chapter 12. Obviously. Chapter 12, 13 and 14. Three chapters. The concluding chapters to the prophecy. And once more I say. The Holy Spirit of God has distinguished this final section of the prophecy by using similar words to those that we saw at the beginning of chapter 9. Namely, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. If I have to make a distinction between uh, the three chapters uh, that begin with chapter 9 I would say there there's the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel as prisoners of hope I'm using a quotation from that segment of the prophecy the Lord looks at them under severe oppression and he calls them prisoners of hope a person who's in prison can't get out He feels repressed in many ways. And uh, he's under the the persuasion to just give in to melancholy spirit. And sometimes prisoners can tell you what it means to be cast down. Here we have prisoners, and yet prisoners of hope. It's a marvellous expression. It seems as if we we run through an antithesis from one extreme to the other a prisoner on the one side and then the hope of Christ the the fulfillment of God's gracious purpose for Israel, prisoners of hope during times of repression discouragement fear, hesitation difficulty, even losing their way at times but prisoners of hope is a wonderful thing To see that God has held out to them in years of affliction. The great tribulation. He has held out to them the promise of God for the hope to be fulfilled. And that chapter 12, the final three chapters. Also distinguished by the words, the burden of the word of the Lord. Putting it that way, I think you will be persuaded. The Spirit of God has created these divisions within the book so that as we read, we can uh, follow the message of Zechariah all the way through until the ultimate chapter, chapter 14, when the king shall come and that day. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. Tremendous uh, Chapter. Grand conclusion, the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Israel. But tonight we're looking at chapter 6. And I want to read, and perhaps you'll uh, just give attention to the reading also as we begin. Uh, notice uh, the perception of the, the prophet right there at the start, nigh turned. Uh, There are times when we ourselves reach a turning point. God's dealings with us. We may be certain here that uh, God is leading Zechariah through paths that he hasn't traveled before. But just to give you a reference point, at the beginning of uh, chapter 5, you see similar language. Then I turned. And this would indicate that in the experience of Zechariah there's a new dimension to the prophecies that he's given. He's entering into a new field of examination uh, involving uh, even physically a turning around and I think also we may speak intellectually turning his mind solidly to searching out The subject that God has brought to his attention. Chapter 5 verse 1. Notice how the words are developed for his intent study of the matter. I turned. He gave himself then heart and soul to this expedient. And now he lifts up his eyes and he looks and he beholds a flying role. I'll I'll maybe get time to mention the reason why I think this kind of language is used, how uh, the sort of look that Zechariah gave to the vision God brought to his notice is so detailed. Surely to begin with the most simple thing we can say because of the development of verse 1 chapter 5 is that his his attention is not diverted he has given himself entirely to what God has shown him I turned lifted up my eyes I looked which is to look intelligently and to look prayerfully into the matter and then behold flying roll. Similarly chapter 6 where we are notice again the same build up in language which is not a needless repetition as no doubt many will think it is but it shows us rather an intensifying of the attention that he has already been giving to the Lord but now He's uh, stepping up a level. And this is possible for you and for me as we venture on with God to say yes, well, last year the Lord revealed certain things, blessed certain passages of scripture to my soul. And now I feel that I'm getting a better grasp of these things. That would be somewhat similar except for the point obviously that Zechariah is a prophet of God and given divine unction. But to begin a few verses of the chapter, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses. In the second In the second chariot, black horses. And in the third chariot, white horses. And in the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens. Which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. He mentions then the black horses. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country. And the white go forth after them. And the grizzled go forth toward the south country. And the bay went forth and sought to go. uh, That they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said... Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he upon me, and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. The Lord revealed his message without a doubt to Zechariah. And Zechariah, the prophet, faithfully recorded that message. And here we are today, just getting around for this little season, around the word of God with an inquiring mind and a searching heart. And we're saying, Lord, come by. And even as you explained the message to Zechariah those many years ago, come, Lord, and enlighten us. With God's word then opened up in front of us. And I would like you to mark the place that we have been reading. Zechariah 6, if you will. Let's ask for help from the Lord tonight. Heavenly Father, we need thee. Our hearts cry out for help from heaven. We pray for wisdom, for grace, for power. To minister in the things of God. We need the infilling of thy Holy Spirit. We're not adequate in any way ourselves for the work of the ministry. But thou hast given men the enablement to preach Christ, to present the whole counsel of God without hesitation, without fear, without meandering off the path. And we pray tonight for the touch of God as in days of old. O Lord, open up the book, thou hast the key of David, opening so that no man can shut, and at times closing that no man can open. The psalmist prayed, Lord, we remind ourselves, and we remind thee, how he prayed, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, that is our earnest prayer. I believe it's our united prayer that there isn't one present tonight, but joining heartily in this petition, Lord, just come by and bless thy word to my soul tonight. We have sung a hymn concerning those who drink from the river of pleasures in thy word. And we ask thee tonight that that river may be in full speed. Lord, teach us the simple things. Teaches also those things that are more profound. We pray for a visitation from God. Lord, we're living in evil days, days of darkness, and days when iniquity prevails on every side. But we praise thee for the lighthouse of gospel truth, that the light still shines, however dark the night is. O God, let the gospel light shine out from our lives. Help us more than ever in prayer to seek thy face. O God, as we open the book tonight, do thou come by and open the book to us. You did it, Lord, for the disciples in days of old, opening the eyes of their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. Lord, there's been no improvement on the position since, and thy people are still in need, even desperate need, to have the Lord open the eyes of their understanding so that they would not depend upon their own initiatives, their own comprehension, even of Scripture, but say of a truth that the Lord has come by and ministered to my soul through his word. Grant them help from the sanctuary, even the infilling of thy spirit. In Jesus' name amen Zechariah 6 is the last chapter if you, if you remember the little outline we gave moments ago Zechariah 6 is the last chapter of the first section of this book of Zechariah because these chapters chapters 1 through to 6 belong together and they consist of 8 visions and we're looking tonight at chapter six, which contains the last of these visions. And throughout these chapters, these early chapters of the prophecy, chapters one to six, Zechariah has had a special companion, a very close companion, one who's described in verse 4 there of our chapter as the angel who talked with me. Think of the words. Uh, They're distinctive for this early part of Zechariah. One cannot go through the uh, six chapters that commence the prophecy without being introduced to this at first, unknown figure who appears as the instructor of the prophet, the angel who talked, and the sense is, "Who kept on? Who kept on talking to me? We have reason to inquire about the angel. I know that there are many among the Lord's people who have a fixation on the meaning of the word "angel," and they can't get it out of their minds. If they come across this word in the Bible, a word angel, they can't get it out of their minds that uh, the reference is made to a, a created heavenly being. But that's not the case. The word angel does certainly describe created heavenly beings. But in addition to that, the word angel can actually refer to men, to women to servants of the Lord so it's got to be said in coming to an understanding of the word angel uh, the angel spoken of in scripture doesn't necessarily come from heaven at the time of his ministry but may be a son of Adam but born the second time by the spirit of grace I think I can show you what I'm saying by turning back a few, few, few chapters to Haggai chapter 1. So if you turn back, I don't know, in the edition of the authorised version you're using, how many pages you need to turn back to get to Haggai chapter 1, maybe 2, maybe 3, something like that. Haggai chapter 1. What are we going to Haggai chapter 1 for? Uh, To explain, perhaps in more simple terms, least readily recognisable terms, what it is to be an angel spoken of in scripture. And said, he's not necessarily a created heavenly being. And it's not necessary for us to believe that if an angel spoken off in the Bible, he has come from heaven. No, that could well be the case, but not necessarily so. Because in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 13, here's what you read. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message, unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew word translated angel occurs in this passage. But it's not translated angel this time. It could well have been with propriety. It could have been translated angel. But this time round, Haggai 1 and 13, the word translated angel is translated messenger then at the end of verse 13 or rather the middle of verse 13 he's the lord's messenger in the lord's message so the lord's message is that comes from the same root word as the word messenger that much might be apparent to you but still i think it's helpful for me to point it out the messenger in the lord's message if you ever needed a definition of the word angel as it's used in the bible you have it here i i think this is a first class reference if we have the matter simply put in such terms, we can't miss it. What is an angel? Is he a created heavenly being? Well, he might be. Some of the angels in scripture were such, like the angel Gabriel for example. But here in the book of Haggai, Haggai himself is the Lord's messenger. We're entitled to say, if the purpose suited, we could say, Haggai The Lord's angel in the Lord's uh, evangelical message. When I say that word evangelical, you're quite familiar with it. Similarly, the word evangelist. I don't know whether you're excellent at spelling or not so hot at it. But here is a challenge for you. You can't write the word evangelical without including the word angel. You can't write the word evangelical without including A-M-G-E-L. And you can't write out the word evangelist without writing into that word the letters A-M-G-E-L. Now, that's not coincidence. Coincidence. That's an indication of the origin of the word. For, rightly speaking, the person who's evangelical, evangelical in the scriptural sense, he is, then, in possession of a good message. EV, that begins the word, evangelical, represents a Greek particle, meaning, well, excellent, excellent, and then the rest of the word evangelical refers to the message. And evangelical then in the scriptural sense is one who has an excellent message. And the evangelist likewise. And you may then take a note of Haggai chapter 1 verse 13 so that the next time you come across the word angel in the Bible you'll say first and foremost this is the Lord's messenger moreover when the angels did appear unto men or women when the angels did appear in scripture they always appeared not just for the purpose of showing them some sort of apparition but the angels appeared For the purpose of delivering God's message. So do think of the ministry of angels in the Bible. That's a a very striking subject. And not many people have given themselves that study uh, to begin with. But listen, every time God sent an angel, it's, it's not so much that the angel is important. Rather, the message, the angel delivers... It's where the importance rests. God's message. And for this angel or that angel, even those descending from heaven, we have to say with emphasis, they have the Lord's message. They have been sent not just to show you uh, with their appearance of glory what heaven is going to be like to be conversant with the angels. But no, the purpose is To deliver God's message. And all the way through these chapters. One to six in the book of Zechariah. The prophet has this companion. Whom he describes as the angel who talked with me. Now I personally believe. That the angel who talked with with, Zechariah. Zechariah. All the way through the first six chapters. I personally believe. He's Christ the Lord. On saying that. I freely recognize. That there are many eminent. And skilled writers. Who take the contrary position. But that said. I have reasons for believing. that The angel who talked with. Zechariah, at such length, is none other than the Savior Himself. Here, since we're at chapter 6, I could give you a reference from chapter 1 to account for what I believe, but here in chapter 6, let's say, look at verse 7. Now, the operatives of the chariots, four chariots, colours of the horses have been given. They represent God's purpose being fulfilled. And these chariots are steered by angelic powers. Those who go forth from standing before the Lord of the whole earth. And therefore, uh, they are eminent angels, mighty angels in God's presence. If you need the scripture reference for that, it's verse 5. They go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. So we must not rob them of identity. We mustn't just think that they're some kind of vague operation with no sense of reality attaching to them. No, they stand. Not like marble pillars. But they stand with commitment. They stand obviously related to the king of glory and they're there to take his command readily and to go forth into all the earth to fulfill the purpose for which God has sent them they stand before the Lord of the earth I bring that to your notice to say these are not angels of the lowest order they happen to be angels of the highest order Standing in the immediate presence of God Himself and sent forth by God on the missions that they have been commissioned to engage in. And now notice verse seven that when the operators of the Bay Horses went forth, and when they had accomplished their purpose, they sought also to go further, that they might walk to and fro, not only in the prescribed area that the Lord had outlined for them, but now it is their desire to explore all of the earth, to to walk through the length and breadth of the earth. How do they begin to go on such a mission they must ask and who do they ask well you would expect them to ask the Lord the King of Glory rightly so well, I find in verse 7 that the Holy Spirit shows that these angels these angelic forces of the highest level will ask permission From the angel who keeps company with Zechariah. And talks to him throughout these chapters in succession. I have to say then. No one but God himself. Can release the angels. uh, For this further mission. They ask permission. But they ask permission of him. And he consents. He gives them that permission to go. Surely that says, we're looking at Christ the Lord. Then take verse 8. Also, changing the picture now. but He cried upon me, Zechariah says. And he spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. I want you to look at the term, my spirit. And I'm saying, that's the kind of expression we look for from the lips of God Almighty. The first time in the Bible the term my spirit appears is Genesis 6 and 3. My spirit shall not always strive with man. Or in the book of Haggai, I think it's chapter 2 verse 5 or thereabouts. My spirit, my spirit. Remaineth among you, the voice of God, referring to the Holy Spirit in this way. My spirit, my spirit shall not always strive with man. But as far as the people of God go in Haggai's time, my spirit remaineth among you. Then in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, the term appears again. Words that many Christians have used in prayer. Possibly you have yourself. But in chapter 4 verse 6. Words that are used by the believer so often. With encouragement in prayer. Not by might nor by power. But by my spirit saith the Lord. The reference again being to the Holy Spirit. And the words themselves coming from the lips of the Almighty. So I say when the angel who keeps company. In such a remarkable fashion with Zechariah. Ministering to him. Who's talking to him about these things that are made clear to us. In the prophetic scriptures. He's saying my spirit has been quieted. In the north country. I I take the reference to be. One in correspondence with the other terms. And it's God himself who's speaking. Through Christ our Savior. So the one who's conversing. With Zechariah. To my mind. Is the Lord. And if we have. uh, Some differences of opinion. We can work with them. But that's how I view this passage. Turn to chapter 1, do you see? And in verse 14 of Zechariah 1, the Lord answered, Jehovah answered in verse 13, the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. Now, verse 14. And the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying thus saith the Lord of hosts I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy I'm looking at the word communion I think that while the Hebrew is just the same for the translation here in Zechariah one fourteen, as it is say in verse 13 the angel who talked with me to talk with uh, Zechariah is in this context to commune with him it's like you having that special time on a Tuesday night a Wednesday night, a Thursday night when perhaps you've managed to get alone with the Lord and with his precious word and there you've come to know a little bit more of the communion of the Holy Spirit. Communing with you through the scriptures. And, and I am thankful for the way that our translators were moved in this place. Just to bring out that aspect of the talking. Because it's not casual talk that we're reading about in chapters 1 to 6. In no way. But... These talks that are held between Zechariah and I believe the Savior walking with him and talking with him. These are highly special times. And they're talking about uh, profound subjects. And, and all this communing with him, with as verse thirteen says, "Good and comfortable words there's one thing about the Lord when the Lord speaks to you through his precious word, you get encouragement i don't look i, I don't believe ever the Lord knocks his people down sometimes He has to search our hearts because we've been wayward, we may have been foolish, we may have uh, slipped away somewhat from that closer walk with God we may need a chastening word but even then the word of the Lord never knocks us down he always inspires us what does he say here I'm quoting outside my notes and I haven't got the reference therefore but but I think I'm not far away at saying Matthew 12 could it be verse 50 Uh, somebody will tell me later a a bruised reed this is in support of my statement I hadn't anticipated using this scripture so I had to find it there in uh, this little computer between my ears just at the snap of my fingers if I get the chapter right you you might agree you've done well enough but uh, listen a bruised reed Will he not break? Nor will he quench smoking flax. A plant that has been broken and virtually destroyed may, in its better days, have been the pride and joy of the lady who keeps the house. But most likely, once the plant has been destroyed, could a toddler have been reckless and just run there, run amok? And broken the branches and spoiled the whole thing. The bruised reed, she might say, that's for the bin. Very likely. Now just a little lesson here. If we liken that bruised reed, broken, useless now. if you think of all that might mean in a Christian's life the bruised read if it belongs to him he will not break and the smoking flax was used to light the lamp Uh, there it was the wick uh, soaking up the oil and burning ever so brightly But then somebody stifles the flame, extinguishes it. And still there's a spark left, just a spark. The lovely flame of light has gone. The lamp no longer shines. But see there, look, there's a wisp of smoke. Betrays the presence of just one wee spark that's all and my saviour in using that illustration of someone who's been broken and even discouraged and brought to a melancholy state I know this is the way my saviour works the bruised reed will he not break nor will he quench the smoking flax. And here in the Book of Zechariah, I see my Saviour communing with the prophet. Now, if I'm right in identifying him as the Saviour, and then you consider that—that that for six chapters, one chapter after the other. Zechariah has this inestimable privilege of talking with the King of Kings. And no doubt they sat down together and they shared these things, precious moments. Then I'm saying that was a visitation of the Lord given to the prophet that changes his whole experience and raises his ministry. To the very highest level imaginable. Zechariah would never forget that time. He would never forget the lessons. The Lord taught him. The angel who talked with me. And Zechariah made sure. That when something wasn't absolutely clear to him. Then he would come with the question. What are these my Lord? By the way that shows us. with more uh, clarity what it means for us to speak about the inspiration of Holy Scripture. The inspiration of the word of God is such that the prophet himself didn't always understand. the message he delivered, this is true of Daniel, who says again and again, what is this about, Lord? What, what does this mean? He himself doesn't understand his own writings. And this shows us the kind of inspiration we believe in. We believe in a word that has come directly from God. Oftentimes the writer understands the message, but at other times, like Zechariah in these six chapters, he's always intervening and quick to intervene and say, Lord, what is this? That's a guide for you and me. If we don't understand Zechariah's prophecy in places, we needn't feel bad about it. We certainly should not run away with the idea, well then, let's give up, that's for people with far more insight than I could ever have. Not a bit of it. Zechariah himself must inquire, and if that's so, where do we come in? Oh, undoubtedly. Time after time, following the prophet, we will have to say, Lord, enlighten me. Now you may not have an answer in the next five minutes. It may be 30 years later, after devoted study, prayerful study, concentrated study. It may be then the light will filter through. But but certainly, I believe, that prayer is not lost on the Lord. So I look at this portion of Scripture and I say, thank you Lord for your word and for the angel who communed with Zechariah. Look at chapter 6. There's so much here in the chapter of uh, supreme interest and the highest importance too. But um, Someone among your friends may say, speaking of Zechariah, Well, chapter 1, I have a fair recollection of what chapter 1 is about. Or it may be chapter 3 or something like that. But when it comes to chapter 6, somehow I I don't seem to be able to uh, uh, get a hold of the contents of chapter 6 at all. It, It just seems to be beyond me. I don't know if I can be helpful tonight. Perhaps I can. What I want to do is to give you three words. They all start with the letter M, M for Mary. They all start with the letter M. But they may well help you in recollecting uh, Zechariah's prophecy to say, no, I'm able to look into chapter 6. First of all, I'll use the word mountains. And you have it in verse 1. Mountains. Then, secondly, verse 12. We're trying to get out the backbone of the chapter. And I'm taking the word man. Behold the man. And thirdly, verse 14. The word Memorial. We have the mountains, we have the man, we have the memorial. If we can retain those three words, then I believe the three words themselves will suggest other things that come to our attention in the chapter. Take mountains, for example. I think if you say, oh, mountains, I've got a hold of that. Well then, in a second or two, You'll say, Ah, oh, wait. There were two mountains. So what has happened? You have added a wee bit of detail. Uh, through scoring uh, under the the first of the words. Uh, and you may say, Yes, and there's something else. Mountains. Yeah, they were mountains of brass. Now you're adding a further detail. And once more, it was, ah, I know that the two mountains of brass were opposed to one another. And from between those two mountains, there came through the four chariots. Do you see how once you get the first step, like the word mountains, you can then advance without realizing that you have actually memorized more of the chapter than you imagined at the first or take the man oh what can be said of him behold the man I, I'm persuaded to add Christ Jesus behold the man Christ Jesus he who's pictured in the prophetic scriptures behold the man so much is said about him here but if we think of the add you'll say ah oh, but Weren't there three men who had come up from Babylon? And didn't we have their names? Oh, yes, we had. We had those three men. They were mentioned firstly in verse 10. Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah. They've come from the captivity in Babylon. I think what we're looking at here in chapter 6 is... uh, The priestly families and the priestly household. For Joshua, the son of Josedek, Joshua the high priest is given a primary position. Behold the man, the priest and the king. The man who's the one mediator between God and men, man Christ Jesus. And then that word memorial. Take the silver and gold, the instruction is, and fashion crowns and put them on the head of Joshua the high priest. Now in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic law, the priest could never be a king. And the king could never be a priest. So it was impossible for the two offices to be merged together like this. But Psalm 110 comes to mind so powerfully, speaking of the order of Melchizedek, who was both priest and king. And here we have the crowns, the silver crown, attached to his brow, speaking of the priesthood, because silver is the metal of redemption in Scripture, and the gold of his deity, his kingly majesty. Placed upon his brow. And the memorial, then, uh, the word memorial isn't used in the Bible the way we use it because with us it's associated with death. And the, the memorial is almost entirely related to the past. But in the scriptures, the word memorial is far different because it points to the future. The word memorial may have an attachment with the past, true enough, but in the main, it points to the future. This memorial here points to the coming of the king. I believe chapters 1 to 6 are not only chapters where Zechariah was taken up with the presence of the Lord Jesus himself, giving a kind of uh, Aura to his ministry in the Old Testament, the like of which is not seen in the Old Testament. Nowhere else in the Old Testament scriptures do we have one keeping company with the king. Over a period such as this, related to by chapters 1 through the six his ministry, the ministry of Zechariah just stands out and we have this memorial of the gold and silver crowds not just a treasure, they are a treasure obviously, gold and silver being precious not just an ornament although it could be used as an ornament but really above all as a memorial pointing out the great day described Fully in chapter 14, when the king shall come. This is one of the reasons why I believe Zechariah chapters 1 to 6 are foundational to the whole prophecy. If you're studying Zechariah with uh, dedication and much prayer, I believe you may do well to keep that in mind and concentrate firstly on these six chapters. Tonight we have reached the final chapter. And the last of the visions. I wish I had more time tonight. uh, To draw your attention to this. I did say at the start. Look at verse 1. Those words that build up one upon the other. Now some scholars could well regard. And I believe I have reason to speak with authority on this. They could just look on the build up of those words that will have to do with the degree of attention the prophet paid as meaningless phrases as pieces of prophetic jargon to be discarded as an irrelevance. Modern versions in fact do that. They just cut corners straight through there as if there is truly no significance in his turning, in his lifting up of his eyes and looking and behold. I believe uh, God has done this just to show us the kind of attention uh, that Zechariah gave to the prophecies of scripture. And it shows also that God enlightened him. Again, it shows that he never forgot his experience, having lifted up his eyes. He never forgot what the Lord showed him. How can we round off the chapter? Well, The four chariots come from between the two mountains. The mountains are obviously symbolic because they're mountains of brass. And yet I remember that in chapter 1 when the four horns are spoken off uh, these horns, chapter 1 verse 18 are symbolic also but they have a real identity. The four horns are symbolic but they relate to the four great empires of Babylon the Medes and the Persians, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire as well. So although the symbols were employed, even there in chapter 1, they had to do with that which was real and meaningful in history itself. And these two mountains to me, while they're symbolic, brass being uh, indicative of judgment, Make me think of the land of Israel, one mountain close to the other, one mountain, Mount Moriah, associated with the temple of the Lord, and also with the sacrifice of the Saviour upon the cross, because the northernmost summit of Mount Moriah is the hill of Golgotha today, In Jerusalem. It's the hill of the cross. But on the other side of this valley. The Kidron Valley. There is the Mount of Olives. And to this mountain. The king will come. The first mountain there. Mount Moriah. Is associated clearly. With his first coming. And the second mountain there. The Mount of Olives is associated emphatically, indisputably, with the second coming. Zechariah 14, uh, emphasizing in, in the clearest terms that it's the real mountain, it's the geographical location we're talking about on the east of Jerusalem. And people who like to spiritualize away the prophecies would feel in attempting to spiritualize And cause to disappear the reference to the Mount of Olives. Those mountains are there today. And in between, there's the great valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel chapter 2 mentions the valley of Jehoshaphat as the scene of judgment for the nations and that great day when the nations assemble themselves with the singular purpose of destroying Jerusalem and wiping the nation of Israel from off the face of the earth the four horns are symbolic they have to do not only with Zechariah's time but also with the end time and here in the scriptures the two mountains tell us that the Saviour who came the first time and suffered on Mount Calvary yonder is coming back, not primarily to Moscow or to London or New York, although all these places will recognise the King when he comes, no getting away from that, but primarily to Jerusalem, where men looked on him for the last time there and saw him Forlorn and rejected and despised and dying on that cross. When he comes the second time, he comes, praise the Lord, he comes as the King of Glory. Can I just say in closing, behold the man. He's brought out to our notice as first of all the branch, we may speak of fruitfulness, and then he is the builder. The builder of the temple, of the house of God. And then again, he is the blessing. So the man is seen in these three dimensions. Here in Zechariah 6, they're all significant. I see him, the man, Christ Jesus. I see him as the branch. I see him as the builder. I see him as the blessing. You say, well, how do you account for the blessing? Well, verse 13 Last line as king and priest. The council of peace shall be between them both. What a blessing relies on him. And uh, what a blessing we have. On going to him at the mercy seat. Where we have the council of peace. There's one thing a Christian can say. And... He ought never to reach the point where he doesn't have God's peace. And he knows whatever his lot and however he may describe his struggles and all the ups and downs of life, he can say one of the titles of the Lord, Jehovah Shalom, is really precious and meaningful to me. Because the Lord is my peace. And when as king and priest. As priest he he takes you spiritually to the throne of grace. As king he governs your life. And we know that it has a future prospect too. As chapter 14 shows. But immediately you come to the Lord. And spread the matter before him. You can be sure. Absolutely sure. Things will go well. Praise the Lord. When you can say, I've now now got peace about it, I've brought it to the Lord, and I believe God has taken it on board, and I now have peace about it. Praise the Lord for his word. Mr. Toms will come.